Welcome to the Crypto Trader Podcast with your host, Jacob Canfield. Guys, welcome to Crypto Trader Podcast. I have uh, an esteemed guest on today, uh, one of the brilliant minds in crypto. They, he's the co-founder of Alameda Research, as well as uh, co-founder, or are you the founder of FTX? I uh, founder of FTX. Wow. Founder of FTX Exchange, a new futures derivatives exchange uh, that just hit the market. They've got a lot of cool, interesting products, uh, but I'm very happy to have them on the show today. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit uh, to, to the viewers and the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I guess as some background, I uh, started my career out trading international ETFs at Jane Street. Um, and I was doing, you know, sort of quantitative trading and arbitrage there for about three years. Um, and then 2017, I left Jane Street and uh, sort of jumped into crypto. I started up Alameda Research, a cryptocurrency quantitative trading firm, liquidity fighter, arbitrage desk, OTC desk. Um, and I you know, grew that out over the last two years. We're now you know, about 25 people globally uh, trading you know, something like a billion a day. Um, and uh, then recently, I uh, started up FTX, which is a new crypto derivatives exchange. Awesome. So can you, can you give us some insight as to what brought you to the cryptocurrency markets? Like what, you know, what, what really made you want to just jump in from, from Jane Street trading international ETFs over to this wild, crazy, volatile yeah. market? So, so sort of the first thing, maybe actually the, the first first thing was just sort of a prior that I had that you know, it had a lot of the properties of a market with a ton of interest, a ton of retail trading, a ton of customer demand, and like a lot of inefficiency. It, it sort of had all the, you know, uh, public uh, sort of, you know, watermarks of that, you know, in, in terms of like just a ton of publicity. Everyone was talking about Bitcoin in, you know, late 2017. Um, but I knew that like, you know, none of the Wall Street firms seemed to really be trading it. Like there wasn't any evidence of a ton of professional liquidity providers there. And, uh, and sort of everything you heard about the space seemed like a pretty immature industry, but a pretty hot market. Um, so I, don't know, I checked out CoinMarketCap and uh, I mean, it looked pretty nuts. Uh, it was, you know, it's, it's hard to tell for sure what was going on because you never know if the data is fake. Like, you know, I see these numbers on a screen, I don't know what that really means, but if it was real, then there's just 10% arbitrage everywhere. Um, you know, you'd pull up the Stellar, uh, page and you'd see like the price on four different exchanges and they would not be the same price. Nice, uh, seven cents, you know, like crazy. Exactly, it's totally all over the place. And so, sort of, I felt like either this is real and this is the trading opportunity of the century, or this is fake and maybe there's nothing here. Um, so I sort of dove into it, and you know, it turned out you know about half the data was fake, but but the other half was real. And that was enough. Um, and I uh, and so I started you know building out Alameda. So can you walk me through how you built out Alameda? Like, did you get an initial investment to get your first crypto or did you just trade up to a portfolio of size first using quantitative strategies or what was your, kind of your first foray into building a liquidity provider? Yeah, um, it's a good question. So part of the answer is that, you know, I, I had a little bit of money saved up for my previous job. Um, and so that was sort of, you know, our very initial capital base. I got some uh, lines of credit from friends. Um, and uh, and sort of when I very first started out, um, the margins were completely nuts. And so you didn't need that much capital to be making a fair bit. You know, if there's a 10% arbitrage, you don't need a billion dollars in order to have a good day. Um, right. And uh, and so, you know, uh, that's sort of how it started. Um, you know, started snowballing it up over time. Uh, you know, obviously we had some profits. Um, we uh, found more ways to increase balance sheet. And, and that sort of, you know, slowly scaled up over the, the course of the last two years. So one of the, one of the things you, you talk about a lot are, are is, is market making. Can you break that down onto kind of an elementary level? Because market makers, from what I know, traditional markets, they're kind of this market neutral entity that provides bids and asks on the books so that you can get your trades filled. In crypto, right. they kind of have this, this really negative, negative connotation uh, as far as what they do. And so can you kind of break down what market making means and how you guys make profit doing that if, you know, for anybody that's kind of interested in that side of it? 
Yeah, it, it's a good question. And I think one of the interesting and somewhat weird things here is that the word market making has sort of been co-opted in crypto. Um, and as you said, you know, on Wall Street, a market maker is just someone who who's out there with you know two-sided markets to provide to customers. But in crypto, um, sort of market makers has been co-opted by by a lot of people to mean someone who wash trades, right. someone who like self trades in order to fake volume. A bad so entity. That, exactly. Um, and uh, whatever, it's sort of annoying, but it is what it is. And, and so, sort of what uh, what this means is that. Uh, you know, we sort of stopped using the word market maker because it's just, it's, it's overloaded. Um, and, uh, and instead we use the word liquidity provider, whatever. Those mean the same thing in lots of various finance. In crypto, they sort of have taken on different meanings. And so, uh, so you know, what, what we do in crypto is a sort of traditional liquidity providing, um, which is, uh, you know, we're making two-side markets on a lot of exchanges. We're doing arbitrage. We're providing to customers. Um, and uh, keeping you know uh, a mostly hedged uh, book globally. Can you do you mind sharing your screen? Would you could you kind of just kind of give an example of of what you I mean? Even if you don't have to share your screen, but kind of an yep. example of like how that would work. Like you see, I mean, I saw the seven thousand Bitcoin buy order or sell right. order out there. That was kind of how you kind of got your first foray into YouTube and kind of your yep. notoriety. Uh, but yep. but how how would you trade something like that and then? How do you make money providing two sides of a market and staying hedged? Yeah, it's a really good question. So just give me a sec to pull up some things here and I'll share these. Um, so, you know, the first thing that I would say is, uh, you know, when everyone thinks of arbitrage, probably like the first thing that, that you know, the simplest example you can think of is, uh, you know, um, maybe Coinbase and Bitstamp Bitcoins are trading at different prices, right? And, uh, you know, you can buy a, a you know, maybe you can buy a Bitstamp uh, Bitcoin and send it to Coinbase, sell it there and make money. Um, and, you know, by and large, this sort of doesn't really work anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, to give an example of that, and here, let me see if I can uh, screen share one second. Uh, do you know where the uh, button if you guys, is? If you guys are listening, I'll explain what I'm looking at. But if you guys are watching on YouTube, you'll have a little bit more of an experience um, in, in what we're looking at here. But yeah, so you know, we were talking before before we started recording. We were talking about arbitrage in 2017. Arbitrage was one of my favorite strategies. Um, I remember there were massive premiums, especially on altcoins. I remember Nano had a 30% premium on two different exchanges. The issue that you used to run into a lot, especially using like Poloniex, Bittrex, um, some of the smaller exchanges, is that wallets would go down. And so arbitrage used to be a lot of fun. Um, Bitcoin used to have massive premiums between. Coinbase, Binance, Bittrex. And so it used to be a really fun uh, strategy, but you know, then guys like Sam came in with their efficient models and their, their larger <laughs> bankrolls and, and they kind of cleaned the market up and, and make, made it a lot more efficient as far as, the, uh, as far as the spreads and how fast those arbitrage opportunities would, would yep. kind of close down. So, okay, so, so. Uh, so cool. You can kind of see what you know, our internal display looks like here. Um, and uh, and it, this is just displaying correctly. Just want to make sure. Yeah. Now, is now what are we looking at? Is this your? Yep. So this is our internal sort of system um, okay. for you know how we look at the world, um, and so you know rather than having to have uh, be logged into every exchange constantly, uh, we just have this single interface, and so you know we call a pointer and basically you know here's uh, here's what these order books look like. So here I have the the and we still call it GDAX, but you know it's the same thing as Coinbase Pro now, and the Bitstamp Bitcoin USD order books. And sort of the first thing that you'll notice is that they're basically the same. Yeah, um, similar. You know, Coinbase is 10,470 at 10, you know, it's basically exactly 10,470. A Bitstamp 10,469 at 10,473. Um, you know, these are maybe differing by a couple basis points. That's not even going to make up exchange fees. And so the first thing you'll see is, and, and this was a trade in early, in, you know, mid-2017. Yeah. Sometimes it's just diverged enough. You could just make money doing this, right? So you'd like, you know, buy this, you know, 1040 Bitcoin on Bitstamp, you'd send it over to GDAX and you'd sell it. Um, but, but this sort of basically doesn't work anymore. Um, because, you know, there, there are a lot of firms that are just providing liquidity on these to the point where they're basically always in line with each other. Got it. Um, so, I uh, so, that sort of is, you know, the simplest arbitrage you can imagine. But as you say, it, that basically doesn't happen anymore. Um, and so what, what does happen? Well, 
uh, you know, you gave a good example, right? Why would you ever find an arbitrage? How could that exist if there are firms that compete them away? And, you know, part of the answer is, well, maybe a wallet's down, right? Maybe Bitstamp announces, hey, guys, something, something, security, something, something, I don't know. Uh, our wallets are down for a month. And you can't. That's what happened with Binance recently. They had they were hacked for forty million dollars. Exactly, and they took their wallets down for a week, um, as you know, a, a sort of security precaution. And so now all of a sudden, well, you could buy the you know in that case. So you know, I'll pull up like our you know Binance here, um, and so you can look at you know the Binance uh, USDT uh, BTC USDT order book here, um, and. You know, right now it's pretty reasonable, um, and maybe I'll just compare it to, you know, another example. Here we can compare it to like, you know, the OKX, uh, you know, BTC, USD. Let's do maybe the Bitrex one here. Uh, so you could, you know, compare it to like the, you know, Bitrex, Bitcoin USDT order book. And what you'll see is that, okay, the, once again, these are basically the same. But when Binance got hacked, they weren't the same because you couldn't get any money in or out of Binance. And so, yeah, sure, you could like buy on Binance and then... Well, you couldn't send to Bitrex, and so even if it was two percent lower there, um, it, you know you couldn't just complete that arbitrage, and so that's what allowed it to exist. And a lot of what arbitrage looks at looks right now, like is is sort of a, you know variations on that cases where there's something which is kind of basically an arbitrage, but not quite exactly. Either it's going to be a week before you can complete it, or in order to do it, you need a certain bank account, and that's tough to get. Uh, withdrawal limits are another uh, good example. It used to be an even bigger problem, but you know there are a lot of exchanges that for a while it was basically impossible to get withdrawal limits above twenty thousand dollars a day. And so, you know, if a customer comes in there and tries to sell ten million dollars of Bitcoin, um, they're going to start driving the price down, and people are going to come in, try and buy it up, and complete the arbitrage. But they can only do twenty thousand dollars a day of it before they hit their withdrawal limits. Right. And if someone's selling more than that, well, then maybe that herb will just kind of sit there um, because no one can close it. And so that's sort of another good example of it. And, and these things are sort of all over the place in crypto. Um, BSV is sort of an interesting example in that, you know, technically the, you know, Binance and, and Huobi uh, BSV wallets are working, but BSV takes a day to move across the blockchain, like a literal day. Because and the block so, sizes are so massive? Exactly. And there's just like not that much hash power, like right. being devoted to it. And so, uh, so you know, you see a, a 1% arbitrage in BSV and you're like, oh, great. I got this great trade. I'm going to go buy my BSV and I'm going to send it to this exchange where it's higher. And then it takes you a day to get it there. And maybe it's no longer higher by the time it gets there. Right. And, uh, you know, it's almost like BSV is a one day future on itself everywhere. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, and shit like this is all over the place in crypto. Yeah, it's it's the 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 market is uh, is really especially altcoins. So so that's your arbitrage. You, most of your guys's profit comes from basically beta neutral uh, market making, correct? Just liquidity providing. Uh, that's right. Although you know, again, uh, yeah, a lot of it is sort of this like borderline stuff where you know it's two almost the same but not exactly the same assets. Uh, but yeah, the, the majority of what we're doing is that. And, uh, and you know, we do have on the margin um, some non-delta neutral strategies, but they're pretty small. Um, you know, we don't put on large positions. These are sort of small, short-term ones uh, based on, you know, some signals. Uh, but, you know, the vast majority of our volume is just hedged trading. Okay. So uh, do you guys play around? I saw the, do you guys play around in any other markets like USDC, PAX, uh, or any of these other markets to kind of shore up inefficiencies between uh, some of those marketplaces? Because I noticed USDC, I mean, liquidity dropped off, uh, you know, a cliff and same thing with PAX and same thing right. with uh, TUSD maybe. Is, there, is that something that you guys play around with yep. a lot? Yep. So we trade basically everything everywhere is sort of the, you know, the basic answer. Um, you know, we're trading probably a thousand coins, although obviously almost all of our volumes, the top ones. Um, and we're trading on, you know, about 30 different exchanges. So, uh, so yeah, we trade all the major stable coins. Uh, you know, we trade all the major coins, and you know, especially you know, late 2018 when crypto went through a phase where everyone just sort of cared about stable coins and nothing else. Uh, we did a lot of stable coin trading, um, cool. and you know, we did a lot of thinking about like, well, that's interesting. Like, 
uh, you know, the stable coins trading at a little bit of, you know, it's not quite a dollar. Why is that? And, and often the answer is, well, it's basically a stable coin, but it's not, not exactly. Like, it's not exactly a dollar. Maybe it costs a percent to redeem it, or maybe it takes three days, or maybe you have a limit of a million a day, or, you know, something like that, uh, where the fungibility with the U.S. dollar is not perfect, and that allows it to actually deviate a little bit from a dollar in pricing. I've actually done really well um, buying into Tether Bitfinex FUD when Tether trades yeah. at like 89 cents or 90 cents yeah. or something. No, like It's like a free 10%. You're like, okay, yeah. cool. I'll just change my spot Bitcoin over there. And then in a day or two when the FUD's clear, then you know I just made 10% on, on this super simple. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's, that's a great example of like, is that an arbitrage? I don't know. It depends on whether you think it's a, there's a dollar or not. But uh, but I think that there are some pretty good trades there. And I think that there's a lot of cases, especially if like, you know, there's FUD out there, but you sort of understand these systems pretty well. And you sort of feel like, man, this FUD's kind of, it's basically fake. Like, I sort of think I can tell what's going on and it's just not that big of a deal. And yeah, this should not be a 10% hit to Tether. Um, yeah, I think there's some pretty good trades there. Now, one of the things you talked about, you've mentioned it a few times, is you mostly do hedged trading. Can you kind of explain yep. what that looks? So let's say you're market making XRP BTC or ETH BTC or one of these altcoin pairs that has high volume, but the yep. market is trending downward. How do you provide liquidity in an asset that you know has over the last year has gone on 97%? How do you remain neutral or even profitable um, market making uh, an asset like that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. The answer is you have to hedge somehow. And there are ways to hedge in, in crypto. I mean, you know, there are futures, obviously. There's various lending desks. Um, there are, you know, there's market trading. Um, there's just selling uh, coins that you have lying around. Um, there, there are a bunch of different products or options, you know, that can allow you to get negative exposure. Um, and, you know, because of that, you can sort of put on a position on one exchange and do the opposite on another. And so, yeah, you know, maybe you buy it on, uh, you buy it on Coinbase, um, but you sell it somewhere else. And so, and you sell it at a higher price. And so even if the coin goes down, you're, you're still going to net win to that. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of this is finding places where you can hedge your trading and, uh, and then, you know, making sure that whenever you do a trade on one exchange, it's actually good to where you can do a trade right now on some other exchange and that you actually do do that trade. So a majority of your trading strategy style, you never look at really a chart. You, most of it is really kind of order book analysis. It, would you say that's mostly accurate? I, I, by volume, that's definitely true. Now, obviously, that's also the least interesting stuff, right? Like, yes. you know, it's, you can just program a bot to buy it at 10,000 and sell 11,000. You know, that's not, that's not sort of the hard part. And then you say, where's the sort of sophisticated part? And that's when you do start moving away from just like number one is bigger than number two. And you start thinking about, well, all right, like there are all these various adjustment factors that I want to be putting onto this, especially as, as spreads narrow, they matter, you know? Right. Um, and, and so, you know, you're sort of like, well, I have this arbitrage, it's good by 10 basis points. My fees are eight basis points on both exchanges. Guess that doesn't make money. Uh, but if you can figure out, well, no, actually there's this complicated way. I can squeeze a few more bips out of this. Maybe I can be providing on this exchange and I don't think I'm going to get run over because these signals and, uh, you know, here's this third exchange where it's even a little bit higher where I can sell and, uh, you know, oh, because because this thing that just happened, I actually think right now buying is is a little bit better, three bips better than it normally is, and you just sort of cobble enough of that together, um, then you know maybe you can squeeze an extra ten bips out of the trade. Now it's good, um, and you know that's the sort of thing where you start getting further away from like number one is bigger than number two, and it starts looking a lot more like well you know, I'm looking at this chart and it's sort of, I don't know, I have some very weak opinion about it, but not, not no opinion. Like there's some opinion there and, 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 and you know, there's enough of, a, of an opinion that, uh, that, you know, that, that squeezes a little more edge out of a trade. So, you know, one of the things that has, has done really well for me is um, my base currency that I kind of 
hedge into. So for instance, like 2018 BNB was like a really good hedge for me. Um, I noticed it had a really strong inverse correlation with Bitcoin almost the entire year. So if ever I thought Bitcoin was going to become bearish, I would kind of move into BNB as kind of like one of my, one of my hedging strategies instead of taking a short out on the futures market or whatever. So is there, is there a, like a thought process that goes into your guys' head where it's like, hey, you know, the U.S. dollar is looking weak. Bitcoin looks like it's kind of going to go on a run. Like maybe when we were at that 3,400, 3,500 level that you just kind of sit in Bitcoin to accumulate more USD. I mean, is, is there a way, I mean, do you guys have holding position style strategies where you're, you know, become a position trader right. as a market maker? Or are you always hedged uh, in some way, shape or form so that you kind of keep everything kind of, you know, beta neutral. Yeah. And so the thing I'd say there is it's sizing. We do do some positional trading, but it's small. Uh, you know, we might put on a trade for like a percent of our capital base or something like that. Um, and, and you know, we do think about, you know, they tend not to be three month trades. These tend to be like a minute um, or maybe a day. Um, but, uh, but sometimes they're longer. Um, but, you know, the thing I, I would say about it again is just that they're not, they're not huge. Like okay. we'll do that, you know, We'll put on a small position uh, because of some opinion we have, uh, but but we don't put on large ones. And so our book remains like, you know, basically hedged. So how do you lose money market making? How, how do you yeah. lose money as a li- liquidity provider? I mean, is every, I mean, I know you guys are doing a billion dollars a day. But are right. there days that you guys lose money? I mean, how what, how does that market yeah. making look? You know, I mean, it's mostly a neutral strategy, but, you know, kind of give some insight into right. the listeners because when yeah. they hear that, they're just thinking, you guys are making $10 million every single day, you know, so. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> um, so there, I'll give you two answers. The first answer is, well, if you're providing, let's say you've got a bid out at, you know, 10300 for a Bitcoin. And there are currently bids on other exchanges at 10320 so you feel like, man, if I buy here, I can sell on those exchanges and make 20 bucks. But that, that sort of doesn't work. And why doesn't that work? Well, conditional on you getting filled, conditional on someone hitting your bid, what just happened? Like probably the reason someone sold to you at 10300 was Bitcoin just crashed, right. right? That's why someone decided to sell to you. And so, you know, probably that 10320 bid's not there anymore. Um, and so you thought you had this arbitrage, but like, it's not really an arbitrage. It's just providing and hoping that the fill is good. Um, and, uh, you know, you could be wrong about that. You could put out some bid somewhere that's good to ARB levels and think that even conditional on being filled, it will still be good, but be wrong. Actually, every time you get filled, it's bad. So that, that's one answer. And I'll give you another answer too, which is sort of an interesting definitional question. Um, so let's say that you're trading, you know, BTC against USDT on one market and BTC against USD on another market. You do some trades and you end up with some tether. Um, And you end up buying that tether at 98 cents. And then tomorrow it's at 97 cents. Um, Did you make or lose money? And, And now all of a sudden what you have to decide is what are you thinking of a tether as? Are you thinking of this as the token trading in markets? or as a thing you can redeem for a dollar, right? right? And Tether is a tricky case, but let's take a, a cleaner one, USDC. You can redeem that instantly for zero fees for a dollar. So if you buy that at 99.80, and then its market price crashes down to 99.70, did you just make 20 bips or did you lose 10 bips? Right. And it's sort of an interesting question, right? It, it depends on what you mark your positions to, because in fact, there are two ways to get out of this USDC, right? You can sell it, somewhere where you can buy a Bitcoin with it, or you can go to the redemption facility and redeem it for a dollar. Right. And, and so that's the other thing that I'll say is that like, you might put on a trade and feel like, man, like, I think this is going to be good with one marking system. But the other, it's a lot less clear. And, and we have days where they diverge. Like we have days where with one of those marking systems, we made a lot of money and with the other, we lost a lot of money. And, uh, and so then it's sort of an interesting question of how do you feel about that day? <laughs> uh, you know, was that a good day or not? And, uh, and it sort of depends, you know, it depends on the specifics. It depends on in practice, how you're going to get out of position, what the costs are to it, you know, a bunch of things like that. Yeah. One of the best ways to explain that is, um, just simply for, for, for my retail listeners that aren't kind of in these like really in-depth kind of analytical models is Ethereum went from 80 to 250 or even $320, but a Bitcoin value and went down 
50, 60% broke all time lows. Was that a good trade? And that depends on whether or not you believe it was better to accumulate us dollars or whether you are, you know, emotionally attached to your Bitcoin, Bitcoin portfolio, because you just lost 60% of your Bitcoin value against, uh, you know, your Ethereum Bitcoin trade. And so that, you know, one of the things when this Bitcoin rally was going on is uh, a lot of people, they were like, Litecoin is, you know, crushing it. Ethereum's crushing it. They're, you know, 80 to 200, so 100, you know, but they were just getting smashed in Bitcoin value. And for me, it was just better just to hold Bitcoin in a spot position rather than kind of, you know, but, but, yeah. but again, it, it depends emotionally what, 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 what you're comparing it to. And one sort of slightly nefarious thing that you see, which is, which is sort of an, a cool example of that, is that you look at a lot of crypto hedge funds and you ask them what their returns are. And in 2018, <laughs> you ask them what their returns and they all say, oh, we, we're up 2%. And you're like, all right, well, it looks like your portfolio went down a lot. They're like, oh yeah, well, we're up 2% relative to Bitcoin. So of course, <laughs> Bitcoin was down like, you know, 50%. Yeah. And then, but in 2017, they're like, well, we're up 80%. You're like, relative to what they're like well us dollar and like well yeah. bitcoin was 400 percent. they're like yeah but we're you know we beat the we made money what you want from us yeah. uh and you see the similar thing where like you know server marketing play the the hedge funds will always compare themselves to the the lower performing asset and sort of pretend that that was you know their baseline yeah the, well i mean you know we can get into that as a whole conversation but crypto hedge funds quote unquote were really like ico buyers yeah, fighting as a hedge fund. I mean, they didn't even know what a future was if it hit them in the space. Exactly. Just take out a futures contract, you know, even, I mean, at all, even these, yeah. uh, even these ICOs, I did a YouTube video about uh, buying uh, Bitcoin futures or taking a fi- Bitcoin futures hedge or, or even Ethereum futures hedge for their ICO treasury. And nobody did it. I mean, all you had to do, I mean, when a Bitcoin was at, or Ethereum right. was at $1,000 or $1,200, all you got to do is just hedge your uh, ICO yeah. treasury so that you can maintain your development. But that's a whole nother lecture and conversation. Yeah, so no, absolutely. Where, do you, you know, one of the things that I do want to talk about that I didn't see you get into in depth with Luke was, was just regulations, man. Yeah. What do you, what do you see on, on regulations? I've been in the space a long time and it's really disheartening i mean i'm an i'm an accredited investor but you know i yeah, i'm he, chomping at the bit to be able I to trade on FTX, man and, and buy yeah. ftt i was i was yeah bummed, man i was like hey if i can't you know i can't buy ftt and the thing does a 3x 4x yeah. 5x which congratulations but thank you i couldn't buy it <laughs> yeah it's tough I, and i mean you know I think there are obviously a lot of ways to look at it you know the fact of the matter is that most countries have not figured out how the fuck to regulate crypto yet it's yeah. a new asset. It presents some challenges. They don't know what to do. And, you know, some countries have sort of a wait and see approach of, you know, we'll, uh, we'll sort of monitor the markets. And if there are things we really don't like, we'll call them out and we'll sort of work on, on regulation. And other countries take the more sort of uh, conservative approach of like, you can't do something until we figure out how to regulate it. You know, until we have a framework for this, you can't do that thing. And, you know, the United States has by and large taken the second approach of, you know, you can't trade futures in the United States until we figured out what the right regulation is for crypto derivatives. Um, and that's made it really fucking hard to do a lot of crypto from the United States. And, uh, you know, it's true of most countries that they don't know how they're going to ultimately regulate crypto, that this is a work in progress. But, it, but I think the big variation you see between countries is this thing. It, it's, you know, whether their approach is uh, we haven't outlawed any many things yet, we will do that as they come up or we haven't whitelisted many things yet. We'll do that as they come up. Um, and, you know, there's a huge difference between those two in a new industry. Yeah, I think that, I think the, uh, I'm going to sue you and you guys can get some regulatory framework about the people we're suing and the outcomes of these case is a pretty shitty strategy for the U.S. to take as far as like cryptocurrency is involved because it's like, Am I doing something illegal? Well, you haven't said it. Well, here's a lawsuit. And it's like, oh, well, fuck. Okay, cool. So I guess that wasn't a good thing to do. Exactly. And obviously what, you know, what we want is to basically try and have guidance on what we can do. If we don't have that, basically try and do something reasonable. And if a regular doesn't, regular doesn't like it, they call us up and like, hey, I see what you guys are doing. Uh, we're not super happy with it. Uh, here's how we, you know, here's what we would like you to change. Uh, as opposed to like that was illegal for you know a case where a law wasn't written yet yeah um but uh but you know 
I think that, and I do think it's it's totally stifled crypto in the United States. I mean, it's, you know, fuck it, I'm not in the United States right now. And, and you know, there's a reason why, right? Like, it's really hard to run crypto out of the States. So um, on that topic really quick, you're in Hong Kong yeah. now, correct? Yep. Now, how are you able to trade as a, I mean, do you have a corporation set up in Singapore? And um, right. is that, does that make you kind of, uh, right. What, what, what you do? Yeah. The answer is a, a lot. I mean, and this is a really ongoing, uh, area for, for us and a lot of people in crypto is, you know, here are five exchanges. One says you gotta be American. The other says you can't be American. Third says you gotta be Japanese. Fourth says you can't be Japanese. Fifth says you, you gotta be Chinese. And you're like, all right, I don't know how I'm going to do this. <laughs> um, uh, and what uh, happens if your business has a Chinese citizen, a Japanese right. citizen, and a U.S. citizen. Exactly. Does that mean you can do everything or nothing or what? And, yeah. and you know, sort of the answer is, well, it's, you know, it's an emerging field. No one's quite sure. Like these are, again, these regulations are still being written. Uh, but, you know, we sort of, you know, throw the kitchen sink at it. You know, we have, uh, we have entities in a lot of different uh, countries. Uh, you know, we're uh, pretty multinational uh, at this point. Um, we have employees in multiple countries. Um, we, uh, you know, obviously we're, you know, uh, ECP, we're an accredited investor. Um, and, uh, you know, our operations are primarily overseas. Um, and, uh, you know, we've opened up subsidiaries in a lot of countries specifically to be able to, to be active there. And, you know, sometimes gotten bank accounts there and talked with local, uh, you know, local regulars, local banks, local exchanges about what the policies there are what and what sort of need to infrastructure we need to be able to, to, to be active there. Um, and obviously it's sort of frustrating. Like, we're sort of like, look, we're not, I don't know, like we're not money laundering. We're not. Can you, can you talk about, I mean, I saw, I saw a little bit about that with, with, uh, with your last interview. Can you talk about your bank problems? Cause I had a similar yeah. issue cause I was moving oh, yeah. some pretty big size in 2017 where they were like, are you an arms dealer? What are you doing right. depositing this money? Because the lady at the bank was like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a doctor, but I trade part-time. They're like, but this but is part-time. No, like, no, we had 20 of those people and they each withdraw $200 a month from their E-Trade account. Like, that's not <laughs> what you're doing. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, no, uh, basically, I mean, as a lot of people have had this problem, you know, you wire from Coinbase to your bank account and you get a call the next day saying like, hey, just so you know, we're, we're going to process this, but, um, you know, our headquarters is, is taking a, a sort of deeper look into your account. And you're sort of like, all right, time to get a new bank account. Um, yeah. And uh, so what, can, can you give insight on like what bank was the most crypto friendly that you've found? Yeah, no, absolutely. And the answer is uh, it's crypto specific banks. So in the, you know, in, in many countries right now, there is, it's backing up a little bit. You know, 2016, 2017, it looked like maybe every bank was going to find a way to, to take crypto. You know, Wells Fargo was doing a lot of crypto, like everyone was talking about, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see, whatever. And then a bunch of things happened and eventually uh, that sort of changed. And, and sort of the, the new norm was, you know, by default, you don't do crypto. By default, a bank just does not allow any crypto to hit their books. And if they decide one of their customers is doing a lot of crypto, they'll just shut down their account. Um, and so what happened was just this bifurcation where almost no banks are, are happy with crypto, but a few popped up that are just like really crypto specific and have sort of put a lot of energy into understanding the specific regulations to crypto and understanding how you can bank crypto entities and getting good at it. And, uh, you know, sort of some of the standouts are, I think Silvergate is one we've been super happy with. Um, it, you know, started Silver, sort of a, Silvergate bank. Silvergate Bank started as a small regional U.S. bank and pivoted to crypto a couple years ago and built out an entire infrastructure for banking crypto. I, and, tried, to, I tried to convince uh, uh, one, one of my friends who owns about 12 banks to pivot to crypto in 2016, 2017, uh, yep. especially to be an exchange uh, on-ramp uh, exactly. for, um, for some of these big exchange, exchanges. Exactly. Um, and in fact, Silvergate did exactly that. So they built what they call the Silvergate Exchange Network, SEN. And it's basically an omnibus system where you can get instant USD transfers between crypto exchanges through Silvergate if they bank at Silvergate. Oh, that's amazing. Well, shout out to Silvergate. Uh, we'll put that yeah. in the show notes. And then 
Uh, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, I know we've been talking about a lot of stuff and I appreciate all your time. Uh, I'm sure viewers and listeners are just uh, soaking up a lot of this information, but I'd love to talk about uh, your new exchange, FTX.com. And just so you guys know, this is yep. not a sponsored interview. I just really wanted to, uh, to bring them on the show. But can you talk about FTX and maybe go, maybe do a little screen share on, Yeah. let's say you're exposed to a bunch of shit coins because you just really love your shit coins. And yep. right now we're at the bottom of the market, but how would you buy, let's say on Binance and maybe how would you hedge on FTX uh, against maybe some, some more downside exposure? How, how would you kind of use FTX in collateral with maybe spot buying as an investor? Yeah. Or just in general, kind of talk about some of your new products. And I know you've got some exciting new products coming out, like, uh, like your hash rate futures, your, uh, some of these really cool uh, futures yep. contracts that you guys are, are creating. So, so for you guys at home, if you guys aren't familiar, I'm going to share my screen really, really quick. And I'm just going to kind of show, um, show the, uh, the website here. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Go, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you just share, but um, for, for those that aren't familiar, FTX is a very, very crypto specific um, derivatives exchange, futures exchange that has crypto products specifically. And one of the things that, um, I, you know, I've been switching most of my trading over to um, Bybit. I do have an, out, uh, an overseas entity that allows me to trade on exchanges, but I was on BitMEX for a long time. And unfortunately, the overload mechanisms, the slippage, uh, just became way too much for me. And I'm sure you're on BitMEX. I think you guys, you know, maintain four out of six of the, the leaderboard mm -hmm. positions, but it just became too much for me. I just, I, I mean, I couldn't scalp trade anymore. Yeah. And, and so I'm really excited for FTX because you guys are a big liquidity provider. And so, you know, having that available, I, you know, I, I'm considering switching over. I just, you know, was really kind of doing some deep dives into this, but kind of go through FTX, what you guys have on here, talk about your kind of order books, maybe the OTC side of things and just kind of how you use this in combination with some of the other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so here, here's FTX. It's, uh, you know, our, our uh, crypto derivatives exchange. Um, and, you know, I'll kind of start by showing you just like, you know, one of the sort of, you know, most straightforward, you know, things here. Again, we have Bitcoin futures, obviously, you know, we have Bitcoin perpetual futures, um, we have also Bitcoin quarterly futures, um, and uh, and we also recently launched launched uh, spot markets. We also have you know just a Bitcoin USD order book, um, and uh, you know in general these these are pretty liquid order books, um, and you know that's because of Alameda obviously. Uh, you know as one of the, the largest liquidity providers, it, that was sort of you know the the easiest step for us. Um, and so you know you can. Uh, uh, you know, you can, you can trade the Bitcoin futures here, but maybe I'll just jump straight to the other things because I think those are sort of the, the newer things here. Yeah. Um, and so, I like how I did, I did like how you guys changed the, uh, the URL cause it was FTX.com slash bullshit. And now I think it's a little bit more of a, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so basically, uh, you know, I'll, I'll show you something. So one thing here is, you know, this is our, our altcoin exchange, uh, altcoin future. So, so what's this? This is kind of kind of a cool concept. It's a uh, it's a perpetual future on an index of altcoins, um, and so I you know why would you want such a thing? Well, let's say that you know you're bullish on you know you're really bullish on Litecoin, for instance. You know you think that because of something something happening, something something like Litecoin's really going to go up. Having um, having uh, and uh, and and you know you, you're you're just really bullish on it, but uh, but you actually don't want to express an opinion about crypto overall like you're worried about just a market crash and so yeah you, you know your your litecoin did well compared to everything else but uh but but just everything did poorly um so one thing that you can use you can hedge it with the altcoin index perpetual futures and so uh what this is is it's just a futures contract that expires to you know an index of like the top 10 altcoins so it's you know bitcoin gash bnb bsv eos eth uh the oltc tron and uh, XRP in it. Um, uh, one just, of the things I'll ask, how long are your yeah. futures contracts? Yep. So we have uh, two different types. So we have the perpetual futures, which, uh, you know, like the, uh, like the, you know, BitMEX and other perpetuals, it sort of has, you know, these uh, funding payments. They're basically one day futures is sort of a way to think of them. It's like but, a, you know, a ratio between longs and shorts who pay each other and, you know. Kind exactly. Of, okay. 
Um, and then we also have quarterly futures. So we have futures that expire every three months. And so here's the uh, you know, September 2019 futures. Uh, these are expiring on you know, September 26, 2019, um, and, uh, or, or 27th, depending on, on your time zone, I guess. Um, and uh, uh, so you know, for, for everything that we have listed, we have both uh, perpetuals and quarterly futures. Um, and, uh, and so what you could do is you, know, you could buy your Ripple on, on you know, Binance or whatever, and then you could sell uh, you could short sell some, uh, you know, altcoin futures, and so I'll just show you, you know, what that looks like. It's, you know, sort of what you, you know, what you'd expect here. So I've got, you know, 500 bucks of collateral in my account right now, and, uh, you know, maybe I'll sell, uh, you know, two altcoin perpetual futures or something. Um, and, uh, you know, what what happened there? And now you know, you can see my uh, my position popping up. Is well, you know, I bought Ripple somewhere else. And then I sold, you know, 1,400 bucks of this index feature. And this index feature will just perform however, you know, the altcoin industry in general does. Right. And so if, you know, the whole market craps out, but Ripple does better than other things, I still make money. You know, I still, you know, my, my Ripple outperforms my altcoin. Now, obviously, if, if Ripple goes up less or down more than other altcoins, I lose. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of a nice way to, to place the bet of, like, how will XRP do compared to altcoins in general? Um, and let's just sort of really narrow in on what you're trying to express. Uh, you know, what exact trade you want to do. Uh, you know, if you want to bet on like BTC dominance, the thing you could do is you could, uh, you know, if you think Bitcoin's going to outperform other altcoins, you could go buy some Bitcoin futures um, and then sell altcoin perpetuals as a hedge. And now what you have on is this spread of like Bitcoin performance minus altcoin performance. Right. Um, and so then, you know, again, you're not exposed to whether Bitcoin goes up or down, you're exposed to whether it does better or worse than altcoins. Um, one, of the way that, one of the ways that I use futures, and this may or may not be correct, but I'm mostly a, a positional trader and a swing trader, but I do, um, you know, depending on market conditions, if it's choppy or whatever, I'll, I'll become a scalp trader for a little while until yeah. market clears up. But one thing that I do is, you know, I use Fibonacci, moving averages and stuff like that. And when we come right. up to really, really key levels, all I'll do is I'll take out a, a futures contract against my against my holdings instead of having to sell. Especially, you know, one of the things about futures for my listeners and my viewers is well, one of the beautiful things is if you don't want to sell your spot because you're trying to get that uh, the tax benefits, the long term cap gain rather than short term cap gain. Well, you can also take out a margin position to hedge yourself against key levels. Um, is so you can kind of keep your portfolio neutral instead of having to sell and take that short-term um, cap gain. Uh, and you just continue to hold, but now you're hedged neutral at key resistance levels, maybe a quarterly resistance level, monthly resistance level, weekly resistance level that's historically, you know, been a volatile, you know, reactive level. So that's one of the ways that I use futures. Um, and so being able to use yeah. FTX would be a beautiful thing because, you know, a lot of people, love to hold altcoins for very long periods of time as long-term investments. So being able to short the alt market, especially, you know, as an index would be a beautiful thing, especially if you were um, bullish on the technology, bullish on the, on the specific project, but it, but it allow you to kind of keep your portfolio pretty neutral. Yeah, so, exactly. And, and, you know, as you said, futures are great for this. A, you don't have to sell your coins. B, you can use a lot of leverage. So you don't need to tie up all of your capital there. Um, you know, you can just have margin orders out in both directions. So you can trade, you know, put on whatever position you want or take off whatever position you want at whatever level. And, you know, another nice thing about FTX in particular, which sort of separates it from a lot of the other exchanges, is that um, you just have one margin wallet for all of your positions. So you don't need awesome. to separately, you know, collateralize everything. You can just store, you know, store whatever, you know, a few Bitcoins here, store 10,000 bucks, and then whatever trade you want to do, you're like, oh shit, like, I think right now I want to start accumulating Bitcoin deltas or Litecoin deltas. You just pull up the Litecoin or book and trade. You don't need to have Litecoins or Tether there. You know, if you want to short your ETH, you don't need to have anything specific there. You can just short it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that's sort of one of the nice things about, uh, about futures is super flexible uh, in, in that sense. So how has you guys' uh, launch been going so far? Yeah, it's been pretty good. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the exchange has been open for, about uh, about three months now, um, and uh, you know volumes have been have been pretty healthy. We have 
here you can see this is our global volume monitor. So this is sort of another cool feature of it. We uh, basically you know, looked at volumes across all the exchanges globally and filtered out all the, the self trades and the fake volume. The, um, yeah, the wash traders. Exactly. And so you can see here's, you know, what the real exchanges look like. You know, here's what CoinMarketCap would look like if it didn't have, uh, you know, didn't have, you know, wasn't inundated with, with just fake exchanges at it. Right. So um, it's been around for three months where, you know, some, somewhere in the top uh, 15 or so by volume trading, you know, somewhere around 150, $200 million a day. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously a big chunk of that is sort of the Bitcoin perpetual futures as sort of the highest volume contract. Um, but, you know, today we've gotten a lot of interest in our algo futures because obviously algos had, a, you know, a really busy day. Massive and day. So if, exactly. And so if you want to put on, you know, a 50x levered bet on algo uh, in either direction, you can, you can do that here. Um, hey, you, guys and, are, you guys are uh, creating, I mean, who, who knows? I mean, it's up 64%, but, but was, that a, was that an Alameda short squeeze that we just saw? I mean, were, were, were people shorting the hell out of it and they just got squeezed out? Right. On, it's an you know? interesting question. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think that there is, you know, we, we haven't seen a ton of open interest. We've seen some in open interest on the algo features, but we've seen a lot more day trading. You know, I okay. think that it's less been people holding a long-term short or long and more people saying like, man, you know, like today you can see a huge spike in, in trading activity when Algo made their announcement and popped as basically a lot of people just got super long Algo futures. Yeah. And so, you know, and again, it's super convenient because you just had some dollars sitting here for whichever trades you happen to want to do. And now you're like, oh, great. Like, you know, Algo news came, just came out. I can just go lift some Algo futures on margin here. Um, yeah. And so we see a lot more of that, of people sort of day trading the Algo Futures, whereas I think you know, for the uh, index features and the Bitcoin features, you see more, at least you know, relatively speaking, of people who have to hold some you know longer-term hedge on, um, and, and maybe the tether futures are another good example of this. So, uh, you know, if you have, uh, you know, you think basically that like you want to own some tether, some spot tether, because you need to use it to trade. I mean, it's if you're trading on Binance, you sort of need it. Um, but you don't want to be exposed to it. Um, you could hold that tether, but then just come here and short sell some tether futures. Right. Um, and these are super liquid, and you can sell three hundred thousand tether a little bit above a dollar. Um, that's got a nice. I mean, that can have a nice spread, especially if you get some nice uh, fud. You know, you can exactly sell that futures contract if you're. I mean, tether is the most liquid, but a lot of people don't want to hold yep. it because Bitfinex is uh, arguably a ticking time bomb. With uh, with all the craziness that's been going on there, so um, let's let's pivot just a little bit, and then we'll we'll, we'll wrap this up, man. And I'm sure people are going to want to have you back on. It's so much insight that, that they're kind of getting into. But one of the things that I wanted to ask, I I, I asked some uh, some of my community trade members in my in my trading community what they wanted to hear from you specifically. And one of the one of the biggest things was. How do you spot bad actors, bad market makers? Yeah. There's spoofing. Right. There's, uh, you know, there's buy walls, sell walls. There's there's a lot of bad manipulative tactics in the market. And how do you, as a as kind of a liquidity market, because there's there's yeah. good market makers, but then there's bad market makers that can kind of corner them, trap them in supply, and kind of do all these other tactics to the the actual good liquidity providers. And I know, and I know for a fact that there were some Chinese market makers who were guaranteeing price levels, guaranteeing right. volume levels with their, you know, they'd get 10 million plus 30% coin supply to, to pump it up to X, you know, price levels so that the yep. you know, project can sell at levels. How do you, how do you kind of, how do you find those? Yeah. So, you know, I think what I'll say is there's a lot of subtle cases where it's actually unclear and it's really hard to dig, but maybe you can make progress, but maybe you'll just start by describing some of the more obvious ones you know, some of the cases where it's just pretty unambiguous. Um, so one of them is, um, you know, we've seen a guy in BitMEX you recently. Your screen, you could, you could share that yeah. if you want to and uh, take off and just have a conversation. We can do that too. But, yep. you know, this is kind of the nuts and bolts that I wanted to kind of get into on the podcast. Just, you know, educating people on stuff that they just, you know, wouldn't even think about really. But stuff right. like, you know, you and I think about, but it's kind of second nature because we've just been doing it so long. Exactly. And so, um, so, you know, I think the basic answer here, um, and let me see, am I still screen sharing here? Sorry. Yep, you're still screen sharing on the FTX platform. The Ether. Got it. 
how do I I actually don't know sorry give me a sec oh that's okay you know what button gets rid of that uh, the screen share it's it's a little tiny bar um, you want me to you want me to unscare here oh I'll there we go I got, I got it there we go okay. cool thank you there we go cool um, yep so I uh, so yeah, so so some some sort of obvious examples. There's been a guy on Bitmax recently who will sometimes place a thirty million dollar bid. I've seen, um, and that's fucking huge. I mean, thirty million dollars you just don't see bids that big usually, and either that's um, a massive news or it's a spoofer. And in practice, he places it twenty bits below the top of the book and then cancels it a minute later. And that's just like there's no trading strategy that's not spoofing. Where yeah. that's a good strategy. You're never like, all right, like time to go, like you know, express my opinions about the direction of, of crypto. I'm going to place a thirty million dollar bid, a percent <laughs> below the book, and then cancel it a minute later. Like, no, you don't do that. Uh, and, and so that's, I think, just a pretty blatant example of someone who was the only reason you would place that order would be to manipulate the market. And so, so you know, that's one way. That, now, now for people listening, people, yeah. for people watching, what does that do? What does that do to the market? What does that do to the algorithms, right. bots, and and how do you? Yeah, so the $30 million order didn't do that much because I think everyone looked at it and they're like, oh, come on, dude. Like, we're not fucking buying that. Obviously, that's fake. Right. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think his goal was to trick people into thinking he was a big buyer or something like that. Right. You know, uh, if you want to create- That used to work really, really well. It, it used to work really well until people adapted to it. You know, if you want to crash some project, place a giant offer and then cancel it and like- you know, it's that sort of thing that I think you see people trying to do. And it's obviously really bad for markets. Like this is, you know, this is not, uh, it, it sort of destroys the information that you can get from order books. Um, but, uh, you know, so, uh, so that's sort of a pretty obvious example of a bad actor in markets. Um, and, and maybe one other example I'll give is uh, just completely obvious self-trading. And sometimes it's like a little bit hard to tell, but sometimes it's just not. Um, Sometimes you look at an and you're like, man, like someone is just like printing a trade at mid every 10 seconds. Like so it's not even a price a trade can print at. Like that right. just can't happen. Like, like obviously that's fake. It, it has to trade on either the bid or the offer unless it's the exchange making up numbers or someone immediately placing an offer and lifting their own offer. Right. Um, and, uh, and so it's like an example of just one where there's just no ambiguity. Like it's, it's just, it's just hundred percent fake. Um, and I, uh, and so you can kind of look often at order books and at, uh, you know, uh, uh, fills or, or market trades rather, and be like, all right, those those trades could not plausibly come from like normal behavior on that order book. Like that doesn't make sense. So how do you guys keep bad actors out of FTX? Do you, is there a is there a algorithm that senses that that sees right. the trading? Because I mean KYC AML is so big, and you know you don't want to be a target. Yep. Is there a way that you guys can kind of right? So there are a few things there. Uh, one is we do AML KYC people. So you know if we do catch someone, it's not like these are all anonymous accounts we can't do anything about. Right. Um, Another thing is uh, we ban self-trades. So the matching engine just does not allow a self-trade to print. Wow, interesting. Um, so even if you try, it'll just cancel your order. So you won't successfully get a trade on the books. Um, uh, so that sort of does something to you know fight one type of this. Um, you know, another thing is that uh, right now the order books are they're pretty liquid. I mean, you know, you sort of look at these, and it's not just that they're generally liquid. But that you can sort of see where the real scales are and where the real size is. And, you know, I think that people sort of take that as an indication of what the real price is here because you can trade against it. And you see some bullshit order and you're sort of like, I don't know, like if, you know, yeah, I see your massive fake order there. But like if the world believed that, then like there wouldn't be all these offers right, you know, right on the other side of it. Um, so that's sort of another thing that I think helps fight it. Um, and then the last thing is that we're just looking at our markets, you know, all the time, um, not just to catch spoofers, but also, uh, you know, to monitor the, exactly, to make sure everything's going well, to make sure that, uh, you know, there are no problems and to try and figure out what we can do to improve the product. And so we'll just see it. And, you know, we have enough experience that we can usually find these pretty quickly and just be like, all right, like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Like, that's obviously a fake order, uh, and and when then we can address that. So we haven't had that problem so far, 
Um, and I think it's going to be, we're not going to be a very hospitable venue, I think in general for, uh, for spoofers. Now, one, one big myth that I did kind of want to address is yep. um, technical analysis. I'm a, I'm right. very big fan of it, right? Moving averages, Fibonacci levels, uh, you know, different momentum indicators. A lot of people, they, they have this understanding that, you know, a bad actor, a whale, or, you know, like an institutional high-frequency trading firm or something, they can paint pictures of like an inverse head and shoulders or like an ascending triangle, or they can do all these different... Is that something that people need to kind of worry about that they're kind of getting trapped with these painted patterns of like an algo trader who's like, Hey, let's, let's print a, or do you think those are organic patterns that form in the market and just historically have these, these levels? Because, you know, most technical analysis comes from like the seventies right. and eighties pre pre algo and computer trading. So right. can you address that a little bit to listeners? I know that's something that people talk about with me all the time. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that I would say here is, um, is, you know, think about what, you know, what you're trying to express with your strategies, right? Like, you know, you draw some pattern, you're like, yeah, I'm looking for like a head and shoulders or something. And, and the thing that I'd say is like, really drill into that and drill into like, what's going on here? Like, what caused someone to do a thing that creates this pattern? And why do I think that implies a trade? And, uh, you know, it's one thing to just like look for the pattern on the graph and, and try and trade off of that. But whatever trade you're doing, if you're making money doing it, I think there's going to be a whole lot more money to make and you're going to be able to find a whole lot more signal. Um, if you can really drill into like, you know, well, this is what I think is causing this pattern to exist. Right. This is the thing going on in the world with someone's position or bought or hedging or, or news or something like that that creates this sort of thing. And now I'm not just looking for that pattern, but also all the other things that implies, you know? Like, I think that Bob woke up today and he's selling a lot of ETH because he's grumpy, whatever. <laughs> uh, that's my theory. And I'm like, well, that's going to cause, and I know how he does it. So I'm like, well, that's going to cause these sort of patterns on these places. But I'm going to see other things too, right? I'm going to see ETH price decreasing. I'm going to see maybe some blockchain movements. Um, and you can use those as checks, right? You can say like, well, I'm not just looking at this one thing, but I'm looking for other pieces of evidence to try and confirm my hypothesis. And to try and, you know, reinforce that like, what I think is going on is really going on and that this isn't just like scribbles that happen to appear. Right. So, okay. So uh, on that, just a little bit deeper. So you've got, you know, all these types of indicators there and then just price, there's price, there's volume, there's momentum, there's volatility, there's sentiment. Right. How would you rank and where do you place in a kind of a categorical ranking system? What's the most important thing to you guys and you specific, I mean, what do you look for in, in priority uh, for, for your analysis, your kind of trade system? I mean, especially right. just think about like how a retail, what, what should people be looking at the most yep. to form their thesis? It's a good question. And again, what I'd say is a lot of this comes down to like, where is your thesis coming from? You know, like we don't say our, our theses don't start from like, you know, maybe when you have this volume pattern, things go up. Our theses start from like, there's a guy doing a thing and here's what he's doing. And it causes this volume pattern and it also causes this other thing, but we can't see the guy. So instead we just look for the volume pattern. That's our evidence of him. Um, and, um, and, and so what I'd say is like, really the indicators you want to look at are going to depend on what trade you're trying to do. Right. And like, you know, obviously like price, if you're just doing arbitrage, you're just looking at, at top of book prices maybe. Right. Um, and the reason is like, well, that's how you do an arbitrage, right? You, you buy at one price, you sell it at a, at a higher price. Um, you know, if you're doing a trade that's based on like, you know, lots of people are buying this thing right now, like you, you are about to start buying it, right? Then what are you looking at? Well, maybe you're looking at blockchain movements, right? Of people sending funds to buy a thing. Maybe you're looking at bids piling up in an order book, right? Maybe you're looking at this sort of like initial patterns that you can see on a graph when things start trickling in maybe as like a prelude to way bigger whales coming in. Right. right. And then you think about, well, which of these patterns that I'm used to that I think have some signal would be indicative of that. Um, and, and as to which ones come up the most, I think it really depends on, on certain environment. You know, we've been through periods where 
the most exciting thing in crypto was EOS futures. We've been in periods where the most exciting thing in crypto was Korean Bitcoins. We've been in periods where it's just like Litecoin on Coinbase was what all anyone cared about. You know, we've been in periods where it's Tether. And those are totally different types of traders doing different things, having different impacts. And you're just going to see different things. Yeah, you know, so you got to find out what's what's working and what's not working. You got to always look for that edge, you know, that, and that's what we exactly. talk about on the podcast is where is the edge? You know, what, what are the algorithms doing the most? Is it, is it moving average reactions? Is it, you know, and that's, that's kind of what I, I try and talk about the most. So one of the things that I, you know, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Um, but you know, there's two things I like to kind of finish up with these is, you know, if you're just starting out and you want to get into quant trading, arbitrage, where should people start out? You know, maybe a, maybe a firm, maybe an right. education uh, resource, a book, um, you know, a back testing strategy, maybe PineScript. What, where would you recommend people kind of get yeah. feet wet into mathematical, you know, fra- you know uh, mathematical modeling of, of markets? It's a good question. And the answer is uh, the public resources are not very good. Uh, they're not very good because if they were very good, then the trades <laughs> would go away. Uh, and so no one, no one reveals the good resources. Um, and that makes us tough. Um, so what can you do? Well, going to a good firm. That's like the sort of uh, clearest answer here is if you can find a top quant trading firm, intern there, get a job there, uh, that's going to be the best place to do it um, for, for most people. You know, it, outside that, you, get, you get their proprietary secret sauce. Right. Um, because when people have edges, they don't usually reveal the edge because it's exactly. a magical reason. Now, one of, now yeah. that, that brings me to my second question. Um, and I thank you for that. But what do you think of crypto trading bots and all of these retail sold crypto trading bots? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm skeptical. Um, it's not to say that none of them are good, but as someone who's bought a lot, who's uh, sorry, built a lot of crypto trading bots, uh, we put a lot of fucking work into this. I mean, we have spreadsheets with tens of thousands of parameters. We have, you know, mountains upon mountains of code. We spent thousands of hours wrestling with APIs. Um, we have GUI upon GUI upon GUI with like more and more parameters that we can tweak. We have like seasoned quant traders looking at things 24-7. And like it takes all of that to wrestle our bots into something that's consistently good. And, uh, and so the thing I say is like, this, I mean, I'd say this on almost every stream people ask me about bots. Um, this yeah. is what I say. I say, you've got a kid in a basement who developed a bot who says it's like, you know, amazing, consistently profitable, 99% right. accuracy. And then you've got guys who are spending millions of dollars, institutional, uh, quant trading firms with 200 MIT, Gret- I mean, Right. And they're gonna get out competed by bigger guys. So like yeah. that's my that's my perspective on bots. And thank you for sharing that insight because yeah. you know you, you're echoing the sentiments that I mean you guys are 24/7 round the clock, 25 employees yeah. monitoring your bots, all the parameters, 10,000 parameters. And that's what I say. It's you know that's that's what you. I mean, yeah, that's the that's, only way to. Exactly. And so what I'd say is like don't don't go down that path if you're one guy. You know that's not the right trade. And and similarly there are some paths we don't go down. Right. We're not an HFT firm. We're not doing super high frequency trades. And why is that? Well, there are firms that have spent a billion dollars building cell towers to get faster signals right. that have bought the fastest cord under the Atlantic Ocean that, ha- you know, that have like spent enormous amounts of time and effort cutting out every single line of code, developing specialized chips to process their algorithms slightly pa- faster. And... No, we're not going to beat them at that. There was a, um, I think uh, Tony Robbins talked about in his book, Money, there was a firm that built an underground cable from uh, the CBOE, CME in Chicago to New York City, like a, a so that they could get like a millisecond faster so they could exactly. front run uh, the New York City, the New York Stock Exchange when like during openings or something like that. Right, exactly. And so, you know, what instead is like, try and find something where you think you're really... Yeah, exactly. Right. Be like, you know, I'm not going to trade every product 24 seven with automated systems. Like instead, I'm going to like, here's a trade that I think is good. And, you know, maybe it's just this trade is massive. So the bigger firms can't soak it all up. Maybe it's that it's this sort of niche thing. They probably haven't put time in to find. Maybe it's something you have some special insight into. Um, You know, maybe you've just trained yourself to be really good at manually 
looking at some graph and trading on it. And that's a sort of thing that it's hard to teach a bot to do. Um, and, uh, you know, or maybe you've really fine-tuned some arbitrage bot somewhere that, that you're like pretty confident makes money. And, and so, yeah, I, I would like recommend sort of going down that route rather than like buying the miracle bot online and hoping that it like just prints you tons of money. Right. So uh, last question, what is your prediction for Bitcoin over the next year and, and over the next few years? And I, you know, I, it's hard to yeah. say, but you know, I'll give you mine if, you, if you'd like. I, I just did a podcast with someone else and yep. my prediction. And uh, historically, well, I'll let you give yours first. If not, yeah, so mine's going to be kind of boring. Um, uh, maybe <laughs> I'll just give a, a little bit of background so it's going to be more interesting than my answer, um, which is that every time that I sort of try and look at this, I try and estimate what I think a Bitcoin's worth, and I get a super fucking wide range. It's sort of like 3000 to $80,000 or something like that. And Statistical modeling says it's somewhere. Somewhere there. And we're sort of kind of in the middle of it. So my first answer is, I don't know, this seems like an okay price. But but my second answer is like, uh, you know, I think that if we have a really solid year, we build lots of good things we don't fuck up, uh, that that's going to be great for the space institutions. We're going to feel way more comfortable coming in. And, you know, conversely, I think that if we have like a real shit year and like, you know, we just have scandal upon scandal upon scandal and uh you know all the exchanges fall over and like all the coins are scams i think like goldman sachs is gonna be like all right we're delaying our crypto adventures by another five years right. and that's not gonna be good for bitcoin and so i think that the, the thing i would say is that like i do think it'll probably be receptive to uh you know yeah to what happens over the next year do you give a shit about narratives at all I give maybe one shit, maybe not two shits. Um, uh, I think that they sometimes matter. I think you can find places where they do. I don't think like by default that they're the way I think about things. Um, but I do think there are like specific times well, when I feel like major, right? that's right. Yeah. yeah. So a, a lot of your modeling comes from analytical left brain, not exactly uh, emotional, macro, economic politics. Side. Exactly. And it's not that I think there's nothing to be gained from the macro stuff. It's more that A, it's not my background, but B, I think it's really fucking easy to, to convince yourself that you're doing something good there when you're not. Uh, you know, it's really easy to feel sort of like, uh, you know, oh, I've got this great model of things and you have exactly one data point. Like you've, yeah. your model has been like oil's going to crash and that's been your model for 20 years running because like the last 19, <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly. Right. Peter Schiff. <laughs> exactly. And like some years it crashes and some years it doesn't. And then at the end, you're like, I don't know, was my model good? And, and so I sort of feel like you, you, you know, I only trust those sorts of models when there's sort of other evidence that's kind of confirming it. And even then, I only trust it a little bit. You know, I think, yeah, maybe this is right. Maybe not. But in expectation, maybe it gives me some juice. Cool. Well, uh, Everybody, this was an amazing interview. Um, Sam Bankman Freed. You can find him on Twitter, SBF underscore Alameda. Um, you can find his company, Alameda research.com, uh, where they do OCT, a lot of other institutional type trading, as well as they provide market making liquidity. If you're a new exchange, you need a good market maker. Um, Alameda is the go to resource. I would contact them. And they also have a new exchange called FTX. Uh, we went through that with you guys. I appreciate your time. I mean, you, you gave me more than uh, more time than I uh, uh, even thought you would. Um, a lot of insights. And uh, make sure you guys uh, leave some comments below the video. Make sure you hit them up on Twitter and let them know uh, how amazing the interview was, if you guys learned some stuff. And uh, thank you again for the interview, man. Of course. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right.